Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. Hello, my name is Magdalena Morsi and I curate the cultural programme at Second Home. In this episode, we are joined by the renowned Harvard political philosopher Michael Sandel and the award-winning British-Turkish novelist Elif Shafak. They're discussing the issues of meritocracy and some of the ideas raised in Sandel's new book, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good. This event was presented by Second Home and the Bruguerian Institute. It's part of a new series that brings together the most inspiring and celebrated figures of our time to exchange and discuss groundbreaking cultural, social and political ideas. Enjoy. Thank you everyone for for joining us from very different parts of the world. Uh, It's very exciting and it's a real privilege for me to to talk to Michael Sandal, Um, a thinker, a political philosopher, a public intellectual whose views I deeply, deeply respect. And also to have this conversation at such, a, at such a strange moment, isn't it? When we are bombarded with insecurities, anxieties, it feels like we're all going through a tunnel worldwide and we need a clarity of values, reprioritize um, our values. And we need healthy, constructive discussions in the public space. And one of the many things that I find so important about your work, Michael, is your emphasis on mutual respect and the need for inclusion in the public space. Again, one of the words that you use a lot is humility. And if that's okay, I want to start with that, actually, because I think we need to remember these values even more than before, right now, at a time when our public spaces are dominated by clashing certainties, echo chambers, And the second thing that I observe happening is this growing apathy or numbness. For instance, here in the UK, studies have shown repeatedly that people are so tired of hearing about Brexit um, over and over the same news. They're suffering from what we call Brexit fatigue, which means as a result of that, many progressive-minded, moderate people who want to have a good way forward they are staying away from public discussions. When they hear Brexit debates, they're switching the channel or not buying that newspaper anymore. But as a result of that, more and more our public spaces, including our digital spaces, are being dominated by hardliners who happen to shout a lot, speak louder. So shall we start with that note, why inclusion matters and why public spaces matter? Yes, of course. And first of all, Elif, I want to say what an honor and privilege it is for me to be with you in this conversation. I greatly admire your work and the way you connect the worlds of art and culture and public life and bring the the faculty of imagination to bear on some of the deepest questions of our public life. So it really is a a privilege to be with you for this conversation. To take up your question about public space and the shape of our our public discourse, I, I love your phrase, clashing certitudes or clashing certainties. 
they abound today. I think the most obvious and in some ways the most alarming feature of our civic condition is the empty terms of public discourse. We have what passes for public discourse these days consists either of narrow technocratic managerial talk, which inspires no one, or when passion does enter, we have, just as you say, shouting matches, where we, we have ideological food fights, and where we have people shouting at one another rather than reasoning, arguing, debating. And what we've lost is the art of listening, not just passive listening, but the active, the active form of listening that genuine public discourse and civic dialogue require. And so I think it's worth asking why. This is closely connected to the second condition that afflicts our public life, which is the, the rancorous polarization that we see all around us, all around us in, in social media, as you mentioned, and also in politics. And so the, and here in, in the United States, we're in the midst of a presidential election where the level of rancor seems to increase by the day, if that's even possible, given the fevered pitch of it already. So um, what I'm hoping we can do together is to explore the reasons for this. And in my book, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good, is an attempt to try to step back and ask what happened and how we could make it better. Absolutely. I, I, I want to directly focus on the book. In, in The Tyranny of Meritocracy, you remind us of a moment in 2009 when, um, when people took to the streets in Iran against a clearly repressive regime. Obama praised them by saying, those who stand up for justice will always be on the right side of history. And of course, this was an expression that was widely used, right side or wrong side of history. Yeah. And there was a moment when I think particularly in early 2000s, maybe an extreme optimism too, this conviction that history could move only in one direction, linear, forward, progressive which meant that the citizens of the Western world did not have to worry that much about human rights, women's rights, freedom of speech, because it had already been achieved, that threshold. And it was maybe us, those in, in liquid, liquid lands, I come from Turkey, who had yeah. to worry about such values. Right. There was this assumption that thanks to the, the, the linear movement of history, those countries that were lagging behind would sooner or later catch up with the rest of the world. And I think that was very, very problematic. Perhaps there was also this, it, it was wrong to forget that many scholars have actually warned us against that kind of convictions, especially Frankfurt School thinkers, in my opinion, mm -hmm. who have observed the rise of totalitarianism telling us that history doesn't necessarily always go forward, actually. You can't right. take it for granted. And I come from a country where we have seen a rise of nationalism, Islamism, populist authoritarianism, 
And in my opinion, alongside these arising sexism, misogyny, gender violence, and, and homophobia. So if it is true that countries can slide backwards, maybe we women and minorities need to be even more concerned. I want to talk a little bit about that because I find it so interesting and so important that in your book, you remind us that America might not get it right, that America or any other country, we can't say, well, if you give people enough information, since history moves forward, people will get it right. You know, that way of looking at things was wrong and there was a maybe arrogance hidden in it. Shall we talk about that and why history doesn't always necessarily move in one direction? Yes, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right that there was a kind of hubris in the conviction, yeah. especially in America, over the last three or four decades, that history was moving in a certain direction, that we were on the right side of history, that we knew in what direction history was moving. And it was simply a matter of perhaps encouraging it to unfold in, in, in the way it was headed. And I looked at the public discourse of American politicians and presidents over the past three and four decades. And this talk of being on the right side of history became very prominent during those years. He was connected with a certain um, market faith, one might even say a market fundamentalist faith, that informed the way globalization was carried out by governing elites over the past four decades. And it didn't only misunderstand the character of history, which stops and starts and and can go in multiple directions, depending on human action and political imagination and, and, and will. It also reflected a kind of hubris that, that suggested we had it all figured out, that we were perfecting a system of global markets. And not only that, that if only we could give everyone a level playing field from which to start, the winners in the new global economy, those who landed on top, would deserve their success, would have arrived on top thanks to their own doing. This was part of the hubris. I call it meritocratic hubris. And it went along with the market faith that shaped the approach to globalization that governing elites undertook. And what we missed, what this hubris led us to miss, was the dark side of this confidence and the dark side of meritocracy. Because if it's true that those who land on top do so thanks to their own doing, their success, if the, their success is the measure of their merit, then by implication, those who struggle, those who don't flourish in the new economy, must deserve their fate as well. This was, this was the dark side of the market-driven meritocratic hubris 
that accompanied the kind, almost as a kind of article of faith, mainstream politics over the last four decades. It generated resentments, grievances, anger, frustration among those who were left behind, who were actually quite a few in number. And by 2016, with the vote for Brexit in Britain and the election of Trump in the United States, with the rise of authoritarian populists and, and populist movements in, in many parts of Europe, we saw the, the, the wages, we saw the backlash against the hubris of meritocratic elites who believed they had figured it all out, they had figured out the direction of history, and they inhaled rather deeply of their own success. They looked down on those who hadn't flourished as they had. And we are living, we are living in the world that backlash created. And we're also in the midst of, um, of a pandemic. You are in the US, I'm in the UK. Right. Countries in which the governments have dealt with the crisis very, very poorly. Yeah. Yeah. And you will remember at the beginning of the pandemic, COVID was called the great equalizer. Right. And people were saying, regardless of race and ethnicity, class, region, wherever you are in the world, we're all as humanity subject to the virus equally. Right. But in fact, of course, that wasn't the, the, the reality. And what the pandemic has shown us and revealed very clearly is the existing inequalities, injustices, and the gaps in our societies, in our systems. Here in the UK, even in the same city in London, if you happen to live in a, in a poorer borough, in a poorer neighborhood, your chances of getting the virus, contracting the virus, and dying of the virus are at least twice as high as someone living within the same city in a wealthier neighborhood. Mm. So there are, there are lots of things we need to, inequality is plural, whether it's racial inequality, gender inequality, regional imbalances that we need to talk about. And, and, and the, one of the questions that I want you to explore more is how do we make inequalities plural? At this, how do we put it at the center of all of our work from now on and our, and our action plan and have honest conversations rather than regarding it as a footnote or a side issue in our debates? How do we bring it to the center? Right, that's an enormously important question because contending with the deepening inequalities of recent decades should be right at the center of our politics. Here's why I think it hasn't been. Even center-left parties, Democratic Party in the US, Labor Party in Britain, the social democratic parties of Europe, even they, during this period, have not contended very effectively with the deepening inequality. Instead, they have responded to inequality by making a certain offer. The offer is, we don't need to deal with inequality directly. What instead we can offer is individual mobility, upward mobility through higher education. So time and again, politicians during this period of the center left and center right said, what you earn in the new economy 
will depend on what you learn. Therefore, if you want to succeed and win in the global economy, go to college, get a university degree. Then you will be able to rise as the slogan went, as far as your talents and efforts will take you. Now, on the face of it, this offer, this promise of upward mobility, if only you get a college degree, seemed attractive, even inspiring. Who could be against enabling people to rise as far as their efforts and talents would take them? Who could be against encouraging people to go to university? That's a good thing in and of itself. The mistake was to see this offer of individual mobility through higher education as the primary response to the deep inequalities, which it could never really be. Because however many people could manage to clamor up the ladder of success, what this message neglected was that the rungs on the ladder were growing further and further apart. And a project of individual mobility through higher education, helpful though it is to a handful of people, doesn't begin to address the far-reaching inequalities throughout a society. In fact, it, we easily forget that most people don't have a university degree. Nearly two-thirds do not in, in the U.S., in Britain, and in most of Europe. So create building an economy that sets as a necessary condition for dignified work and a decent life, the idea that you must have a four-year university degree, that's not only a kind of political folly because it neglects a great many people, the majority, but it also leads to a kind of prejudice, a looking down on people who don't flourish as if it's their fault. And it leads, it leads elites to look down. And working people who turned against the mainstream parties who were making this offer sensed that. They sensed the, that the work they did no longer seemed to, to win the respect in the society it once did because they were not of the credentialed professional classes. And so before we knew it, the deepest divide in our politics was between those with and those without a four-year university degree. And those without let their resentments be known when they voted overwhelmingly for Brexit in Britain and for Trump in the United States. And I'm not sure, speaking now of the Democratic Party in my country, I'm not sure that the mainstream parties have learned their lesson. They haven't quite understood the resentment that they inadvertently contributed to by failing to deal with the deepening inequalities of recent decades. I, I want to talk more about, about education, but before that, you said so many important things. I want to talk more about respect. There's an anecdote you, you share with us in the book that really made me pause and made me very, very sad. Um, first of all, of course, you talk about how you have been observing the rise of meritocratic sentiments by listening to your students yeah. and observing how many of them, in a way, felt um, like they were entitled, like, that, like whatever we earn in life, we, we deserve it, we worked hard. 
disregarding all other circumstances and conditions that have brought us there. But then there's a moment when you talk about um, an experience you had in China and a Chinese student after one of your talks told you, because you shared with them the case of a Chinese teenager who had to sell one of his kidneys in order to buy, in order to find the money to purchase an iPad. Right. And the discussion that then followed and what one of the students told you, I, I would love you to share that with us. I, I found it very, very sad and striking. The students in the hall, I invited them to give their views about whether people should be permitted to sell their kidneys uh, to make money and so on. And the discussion unfolded. And then toward the end of the, the discussion, a young man at the back of the hall said, he thought it was fine morally. We were discussing the ethics of this. Yeah. It was fine morally for a rich person to buy the kidney of someone who needed the money. The inequality, the asymmetry didn't bother him. To the contrary, he said, rich people have become rich because they deserve to be. The fact that they are rich proves that they have superior merit and therefore they deserve to be able to use their money to buy even a life-sustaining kidney. They deserve in effect to be able to extend their lives. And this, I was taken aback by this, uh, just as you were even reading about it. But then it struck me, the more I, I thought about this in red in the course of writing the book, that this idea actually runs quite deep in the, in the history of providentialist thinking, which goes all the way back to biblical debates and to debates in early Christianity about whether salvation is something we earn by living good and faithful lives so that God must reward our merit or whether salvation is a matter of grace unrelated to what we do. Is salvation a matter of merit or a matter of the grace of God outside of human control? That early debate in Christianity now plays itself out in regard to income and wealth and power and prestige. And though I'm not suggesting that the young man uh, in, in Shenzhen or wherever he was, or Beijing, um, in my lecture, would have necessarily absorbed the, those debates, the, the, the whole history of the theology, theological debate about merit and grace. But it shows how, even in our largely secular age, the idea that success, wealth, landing on top, is the measure of our merit that runs very deep, and it fuels what in the book I, I call meritocratic hubris. The idea that my success is my own doing, it's hubristic because it forgets the luck and good fortune that helped me on, on my way. It forgets the sense, any sense of indebtedness to family, community, country, the times in which I live, 
that enable me, whatever talents I may have been blessed with, to exercise them in a way that the society rewards and honors. And the, the harsh side of this way of thinking, of this attitude towards success, the harsh side is that it implies that all of those who have struggled with stagnant wages during this 40 year period, all of those who find that they're struggling to manage in the, in the new economy, the implication is if the successful have earned their success, if it's their doing, a verdict on their merit, then by implication, those who struggle, their condition must be a verdict on their, their lack of merit. And this, I think, creates the harsh dynamic, which goes beyond the material inequality. It's an inequality of esteem, of respect, of dignity, of recognition. And this, I think, is the deepest source of the polarization that drives our societies apart. It explains why the social bonds that hold societies together have been unraveling during the age of market-defined merit, so to speak. And all of this is happening alongside financialization of our, of our economies, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the question that we come back to again and again is, who are the people who are given more respect, more rewards, more recognition, and who are the people who have been disregarded and pushed to the periphery? Um, what we've seen is, especially in the last three decades, this neoliberal market-driven globalization, its winners and its losers. And you mentioned, I find it very important, how this basic assumption that the financial sector was the biggest contributor to the GDP, and therefore it must have been the biggest contributor to our common good, and therefore right. they deserve to have more rewards. And here we are, after months of lockdown, every week we have been uploading, not, our, not bankers, not financial sectors, we have been uploading and thanking nurses, teachers, doctors, supermarket workers, delivery men and delivery women, we have been thanking them and calling them our key workers. Right. Could this be a moment, a crossroads, in which we can understand to, to give more value to people who have been devalued in the system? Or maybe I'm a bit more pessimistic. Do you think we will forget this experience as soon as we can? And, and will, will, will we find a new narrative, a new way of giving more value to, right. to people who have been silenced and, and forgotten? Right. It's hard to know for sure. I think in a moment like this, Elif, we have to look for every glimmer of hope that we can find. So without being unduly optimistic, I do see a glimmer of hope in the renewed appreciation for key workers in this moment of pandemic. These workers who we are clapping for and applauding these are not the best paid or the most honored workers in our society. And yet we can't help but recognize during this pandemic how deeply we rely on them. So my hope is that we can build a politics for uh, as we emerge from the pandemic, 
that will build on this widely recognized feature that there is not a good alignment between the value of people's contribution and the rewards they reap. In a market-driven society like ours, there's a tendency to assume that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. But this is a mistake. There are many reasons why the market is configured in such a way as to shower rewards on people out of proportion to the true value of the con their contribution to the common good. We see it in those domains of work that are not even valued by the market, including very often the raising of children and maintaining homes and families. Um, the, the market does not lavish reward or recognition on people engaged in that activity, disproportionately women. The market heaps enormous rewards, just as you say, on the financial industry, and yet it's not, well, put it, put it gently, it's far from obvious that at least the highly speculative aspects of finance or high-frequency trading, let's say, really do contribute in such vast and consequential ways as the remuneration would suggest to the real economy or to the common good. So here's what I think we should do to try at least to make the glimmer of hope into something a little bit sturdier, Ella. We talked about putting inequality at the center of political debate. I would also put the dignity of work at the center of debate. And so that we would ask ourselves, not only or mainly, how can we arm people for meritocratic competition, but how can we make life better for people who may not have university credentials or prestigious professional uh, degrees and qualifications, but who nonetheless make important contributions to the common good through the work they do, the families they raise, the communities they serve. That should be the first question of, of politics. And that would be a way of trying to connect what we've experienced in this pandemic with our, recognizing our dependence on key workers with the way we configure the economy as a whole. Sometimes I, I jokingly think uh, about myself. I can't be a very good optimist because I'm Turkish. It's not in my DNA, you know. I think if you open a map of Europe and if you follow the river Danube, the blue Danube with your finger, as you move from, um, you know, throughout across continental Europe towards the Black Sea, from Germany onwards, as you reach Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey, the level of optimism drops. Um, so, I, 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 of course, I hear what you're saying, and I find it important, though, despite my maybe inclination towards pessimism, I find it important to have a healthy dose, a healthy mixture of both optimism, hope, and I know you prefer the word hope instead of optimism, and, mm. and pessimism. Maybe, maybe our minds need to be a little bit more pessimistic in the sense that we're more alert to what's happening, what can happen, 
but I believe our hearts need to remain more more hopeful. Um, the reason so why could I, I just could yeah. I just could I just pick up on that point? Yeah, because I think it's so important. Yeah. When you say pessimist, I almost agree with you, but I wonder if I could introduce one slight qualification. Yeah. Instead of pessimism, what would you think of, of saying we should have a sense, um, instead of being uh, believing we're on the right side of history and it's all going in a certain linear direction, what about having a certain uh, openness to tragic possibilities, the possibility of tragedy, that it doesn't all uh, unfold um, in, in a linear direction as if we knew where history was going. And by tragedy, I also mean, uh, and this can be an antidote to meritocratic hubris, an appreciation of the role of luck in life, which can, appreciating the role of luck in life, especially in one's own success, can prompt a certain humility, an ability to see ourselves in other people's shoes, to look on those less fortunate than ourselves and to say, there, but for the accident of fate or the luck of the draw or the grace of God, go I. And that, the humility that a sense of contingency and luck can prompt, that humility can also open space in public life for, for solidarity, for a politics of the common good, because it opens us to the possibility that things for us too could have been otherwise, but for all sorts of accidents or mysteries or tragic circumstances. So in the end, the book, my book is a hopeful book yeah, in that it points toward the, it tries to describe the quality of our politics, but also the quality of, of heart and character and disposition that could make us more open to a politics of solidarity and the common good. And I think, I honestly believe this is why we need stories and, and storytelling as well, because yes. For me, in order to understand that, had I been born in a different part of this country, into a different family, I, I might have a different life and different views, not to judge people. For me to understand this, I need to know their story. I need to know more stories, plural. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to this balance of maybe hope and pessimism uh, is because I think what we've lost is the faith that tomorrow will be better than yesterday. Many generations previously, they have gone through enormous hardships. I, to me, it's a personal issue as well, because I think about my own grandmother, my own upbringing. I was raised by two women, um, by my mother and my grandmother. And my grandmother was a woman who had been denied a proper education because she was a girl. And she wholeheartedly believed in women's education. And she very much supported my mother's independence at a difficult moment in my mother's life. And that solidarity that you mentioned, that sisterhood, if you will, left a huge impact on me. Because I think when women support each other, through education in this case, the impact of that goes beyond generations. So I want to talk about two, two layers here. 
both the importance of education for minorities, for people who have been pushed to the margins, but also especially for women, especially from my parts of the world, the Middle East, where women don't have equal representation in the public space. So to me, that is very important to leave the channels of open for more diversity, to bring more people from minority and disempowered backgrounds into education system. Yeah. And, and the second thing I want to layer that I want to talk about is this losing this faith that tomorrow will be better if you make sacrifices for the education of your children and they make sacrifices for their generation in a way what Zygmunt Bauman was talking, every generation starting where the previous generation finished or left off. That, that aim, that progressive aim or faith has been lost. And that is also very demoralizing because then you don't have anything to rely on when you're going through hardships. Shall we talk about those two layers and, and, and education maybe in that, in that light of faith? Yes, this is deeply resonant, uh, as you've described it, Elif. Um, I would like to ask you a question, if I may. You have emphasized storytelling, and you've given us rich and resonant stories. Can you say a little bit about, I've been using the language of, of an appreciation of luck, contingency, accident, um, mystery, tragedy, as a way of reining in our meritocratic hubris, the confidence that we're on the right side of history, the faith that a certain kind of market triumphalism will um, uh, lead us to a just society. You emphasize storytelling, and what that brings to mind for me is the importance of moral imagination and reimaginings as a way of looking at the world that we inherit, connecting with the aspirations and the unfinished work of future generations, as in your personal story, but also reimagining possibilities through storytelling for the future. Does this, can storytelling do that or prompt that work of moral imagination, do you think? I, I, I honestly, sincerely believe it can. And um, one of the many reasons I, I, your, your work so deeply resonates with me is your, you redefine words. You, know, you look for new narratives. And I think storytelling is also a great way of, of trying to do that. I believe all kinds of discrimination, systematic discrimination, actually start with words, with damaging words. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the darkest chapters in human history, including the Holocaust, uh, genocides, it didn't start with concentration camps. It didn't start with neighbors putting a cross mark on their neighbor's doors because the, the color of their skin was different or, or their religion was different, or their ethnicity was different. All of that came much later. I think it started with words, with seemingly innocent jokes, metaphors, how we talk about the other as if they were beneath us, vermin infesting countries. It started with that. So I do believe that the fight against dehumanization will also start with words and with storytelling. It is much harder to generalize a group of people if we know their stories. 
if we do not know their stories, it's just numbers. And we don't connect with numbers. I think as human beings, we're very emotional creatures, men and women. You know, where I come from, they say women are emotional. That's nonsense, men and women. We are emotional and we connect and we remember through emotions and through stories. So for us to overcome this numbness, this apathy primarily, I think we do need more stories in order to rehumanize people who have been dehumanized, but also to bring the periphery to the center. So I see it in a way, I don't want to over romanticize, but there's an act of resistance in my opinion in literature. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. I, I think there, I mean, this is so powerful, Elif. I, I wish we could go, uh, go on for, for hours. I, I think they're telling us they want us to take some questions, but I, I love the way you've expressed it. And I think the sensibility is, is deeply connected to the kind of sensibility I'm trying to bring to bear to an analysis of the, the politics and economics of our uh, time even as you till these fertile fields through, through the art of storytelling. So I find that very powerful and moving. Oh, thank you both. I agree. I wish we could go on, but there are lots and lots of questions. So hopefully we can answer as many as possible in the last 15 minutes. Uh, we'll start with Teodora, because she wrote one first. She's a, a Bulgarian teacher. Um, educated in London and Lisbon. Um, she's a great admirer of your work, Elif, and she very much hopes one day to meet you in person. Given everything you've both been discussing, what gives you hope and what lessons do we urgently need to start learning and teaching? Well, in a way, this is really what just the last moment of our, our exchange really, uh, really addressed this, I, I think. But... Um, Elif, do you want to say, say anything further on this? In a way, this recapitulates the themes that we've just been Absolutely, been absolutely. Maybe very briefly I can add, um, I think when I look at politics, the state of our politics and politicians in country after country, to be honest, I find that very demoralizing. But for hope, I think we need to look at our fellow human beings. I mean, these conversations that we are having, despite everything, beyond borders, national, ethnic, religious borders, and the way we connect, a sense of global solidarity, humanism, sisterhood, these are the things that, that give me hope. So for hope, I think we need to listen to each other more. I would, uh, uh, thinking about the question, brings to mind uh, a, a moment in history that connects to this question of the dignity of work as an antidote to meritocratic hubris. It was shortly before he was assassinated. In 1968, Martin Luther King spoke to a group of sanitation workers, striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. And what he said to them was, Oh, he didn't talk in abstract terms about justice and respect. He made that message very concrete. He said, the person who picks up our garbage is as important to our society in the final analysis as the physician. Because 
if he doesn't do his job, diseases are rampant. All labor has dignity. That's what he told them in on one of the last days of his life. So he was using a moment and an actual lived experience, a conflict actually, a strike, to make this point about the dignity of labor. He wasn't simply invoking the importance of respecting persons as persons. He was saying the work they do even though it may not be honored by most, actually is an important contribution to the common good. And so he was pointing us to a kind of hope uh, that required that we reimagine, back to Ellis' point about the moral imagination, required us to reimagine the way in which we all depend on work performed by people we often overlook. Absolutely, and actually quite an interesting question from Sam Morrell, um, whether or not we could sort of reimagine a new kind of leader. Um, have you, both of you, either considered what new, what sort of qualities a new leader or teacher um, could have that or what we need right now to sort of guide us through the global pandemic and the issues we face? It's tempting to say the leader, the kind of leadership we need is someone who respects science and scientists and who doesn't disparage the advice of medical experts and public health experts. Because of course, we're burdened by, in the case of the uh, president of the United States, at least someone who flies in the face of that kind of advice. But I think that account of the leader we need now would be insufficient. It isn't only that we need leaders who listen to scientific evidence and medical advice, even during a pandemic, though we certainly do need that. We also need the kind of leadership that goes beyond expertise or deference to experts. Part of what's been missing, I think, in our notion of what political leadership consists in is the recognition that being governed by the best and the brightest in terms of technical uh, uh, expertise or, or uh, lustrous credentials misses the moral dimension of leadership, the ability to identify with people from all walks of life and to encourage public deliberation about common purposes and ends. Not someone who will preach the importance of overcoming our divisions, that's all too easy and reflexive, but someone who can contribute to a more spacious, less hollow public discourse that invites democratic citizens to bring right into the heart of public discourse 
the moral convictions they care about. People want politics to, about, to be about big things, including questions of values. And the kind of leadership we've had in recent decades, even before Trump, has in a way opened the way to a kind of narrow, intolerant, strident nationalism and xenophobia because our public discourse has not really addressed large moral and civic questions. And so I think we need to overcome the tendency to assume that leadership is only about technocratic expertise and managerial skill and bring to bear the sense of identifying with citizens from all walks of life and welcoming them into a morally more robust kind of public discourse than the kind to which we've become accustomed. Just to, to, to follow up, um, because it resonates with me, everything you said, I think what we don't need uh, are more populist demagogues. <laughs> it's important to emphasize this because we are bombarded with negative emotions at this moment in time. There's a lot of anxiety, almost like an existential angst, and anger, and fear, and bitterness as well. And we don't know how to deal with all these negative emotions. And life feels tiring. It is complex, complicated, and lots of uncertainties. And at a moment like this, it's easy for a populist demagogue to enter the stage and say, leave it to me, I'm going to make everything simple for you. You know, you don't have to fear complexity. You don't have to be burdened with all these emotions. So that's one thing we don't need. I am a maybe big believer in what Bertolt Brecht used to talk about. Happy is the society, are the societies who are, that are not in need of heroes. I'm a big believer in civil societies, us making the change. Yeah. Because if one thing that countries like Turkey have shown us, let us not forget Turkey has elections, relatively speaking, regular elections. Turkey is not a democracy. Belarus has elections. It's not a democracy. Russia is, has elections. It's not a democracy. So it shows us that in addition to the ballot box, which I do respect enormously, we need other things in order to keep a healthy democracy. We need rule of law, separation of powers, independent academia, free media, women's rights, minority rights, a healthy, robust, engaging, engaged civil society. With all of that, I think we can make a change. And I believe we've entered an age in which none of us can be disconnected or disengaged anymore. And we have to become more active citizens in that sense. Could I just quickly add to Elif's point about civil society and its importance? One other source of hope, perhaps in from where I sit in the US, the, the most promising source of hope is the Black Lives Matter movement, which is operating, just as Elif was saying, in civil society. This is not from politicians, but it's a civic energy that is opening space for a discussion of what a just society really looks like. It is now a multiracial, multi-generational movement. And it, I think, offers hope of a richer kind of public discourse that addresses questions of justice and what we owe one another as citizens. Yeah, fully, fully agree. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many questions. So I'm going to sort of combine two, which I think pulled together quite nicely by Karen and Rui. Um, Rui says, so the only thing to do is fight for equal opportunities. And then um, Karen sort of, which I guess follows on in a way, can inequalities ever be solved in an unbridled capitalist society? So to both of them. Oh. I would um, actually, I argue in the book that equality of opportunity is important, but it is not sufficient. Because what equality of opportunity does is it removes barriers to full participation and achievement. And that is very important. And Elif in this discussion has spoken eloquently about the importance of that project to fully include in public life, in the life of the city, women and minorities, who, members of groups who have long been excluded on, on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, class, gender, sexual orientation. So this pro the project of equal opportunity is terribly important, but it's important to remember that it is not enough because we have also to create something further, which in the book I describe as a broad democratic equality of condition, where, which is not the same as equal income and wealth. It's not that. It has to do with the allocation of status and recognition. It means that a truly democratic society is not only one in which everyone has the right to vote and to speak his or her mind. It's also one where in everyday life, people come together and mix and encounter one another across differences of class and race and gender and ethnicity. Well, one of the things we've lost is the loss of those common spaces and public spaces that bring people together in the course of their everyday lives to encounter one another, to bump up against one another, even inadvertently, because this is how we learn to negotiate our differences. And, and this is how we come to care for the common good. So the loss of public spaces in common places of shared democratic citizenship in the ordinary course of life in, in civil society, as Elif was emphasizing, that's been a great loss. That's been one of the great costs of the inequality that has led the affluent, in many cases, to secede from the common life, from public schools and common places and shared recreational areas and public transit and public services, but even parks and recreation, municipal centers. We live hermetically sealed lives increasingly. We listen to the same social media, the same sources of information. So creating the, in civil society, the shared spaces of class mixing and encountering one another, I think is an important 
a step which goes beyond equality of opportunity, an important step toward creating the fabric, the texture, the lived experience of a genuinely shared democratic way of life. There's, there's one more thing that I find very important, and it's memory. How do we talk about the past? How do we talk about history? In order to achieve inclusion, proper, you know, put our emphasis back on dignity, justice, especially justice, we need to talk about memory. Not in order to get stuck in the past, but also mm -hmm. to understand the complexities of the past, to be able to understand who are the people who have been silenced throughout the past, people who have been not invited to the table when the decisions were made. I find that also very important. Again, maybe because I come from Turkey, which has a very rich history, but that doesn't mean we have a solid memory. I think we're a society of collective amnesia. And our entire narrative of the past is full of voids, you know, emptiness. And that emptiness is usually filled with ultranationalist or Islamist interpretations of the past. So to be more humble and to say, how would I feel if I had been an Armenian silversmith in this historical, you know, journey? How would I feel if I had been a Jewish miller? How would I feel if I had been a concubine in the harem? What would my interpretation of, let's say, the Ottoman Empire be like? When you ask those seemingly micro, micro questions, then you realize the narrative changes. And we need to be open to that. At the end of the day, I think every nation state has its own official version of history and memory. In that regard, states are, nation states are very similar. But what makes a difference between a democracy and a non-democracy is in a democracy, regardless of the top-down official narrative, if you walk into a bookstore, you can find many books, both fiction and non-fiction, that tell the stories of those who have been silenced, you know, the memories that have been forgotten. And the writers of those books are not persecuted. In a non-democracy, this is much more difficult. There's only one single narrative. So I've, if we want to achieve justice and equality, inclusion in our public spaces, I think we should be ready to have some difficult conversations about the silences and taboos in our collective memory, or in some cases, collective amnesia. Mm. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Thank you both so much. I'm really sorry to everyone. There's so many questions, but we're now running over time, unfortunately. Uh, both Michael and Elif's book um, are available from our bookshop, Liberia, so please do get a copy. Um, Michael has very kindly um, given us some si exclusive signed copies to accompany this event. And uh, yeah, to everyone who's bought one with their ticket, thank you so much. You'll be receiving it in the post. Thank you both so much for an amazing talk. I'm really sorry again that we couldn't answer all the questions. Um, have a lovely evening, morning, day, wherever you are. And thank you again. This episode was brought to you by Second Home as part of our Creative Collisions podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up.